from the heart of our nation's capital, here's Family Research Council President Tony Perkins. Sitting in today for Tony is our own Sarah Perry, Director of Partnerships for Family Research Council. Well, good Thursday afternoon to you. I'm Sarah Perry, filling in for Tony Perkins on this, the 30th of April, 2020. Coming up tonight on Washington Watch, you may have thought that the sad tale of former National Security Advisor General Michael Flynn had come and gone. But General Flynn and the FBI are both back in the news. Bombshell unsealed documents just released yesterday and whose release was compelled by the U.S. Attorney General William Barr proved that the FBI I schemed to set up the National Security Advisor. I will be joined by Andy McCarthy, Senior Fellow at National Review Institute, a National Review contributing editor and author of Ball of Confusion, the plot to rig an election and destroy a presidency. Then, in a patent disregard for the value of human life, Kentucky Governor Andy Beshear vetoed the Kentucky Born Alive Infant Protection Act, last week, after it had drawn considerable bipartisan support from the General Assembly in the state. I'll have State Senator Whitney Westerfield, author of Senate Bill 9, the Born Alive Act, on to discuss the veto and what he's planning next on the issue of life in his state. At the bottom of the hour, I think most would agree that ours is a nation in need of prayer. From COVID-19 to the economy and our kids, there's no shortage of things for which to petition the throne of grace. I'll be joined by Reverend Fred Lunsford of Mud Creek Baptist Church in North Carolina, someone I can't wait for you to meet, about his Praying on the Mountain initiative, May 5th, aimed at bringing about a spiritual awakening in our nation. And in my last block, yesterday's Americans and today's Americans stand in sharp contrast to one another. Our parents and grandparents withstood world wars and polio, the Great Depression and smallpox. They built a 1,700-mile highway connecting 48 states to Alaska and put a man on the moon. They now seem like heroes in whose shadow this generation stands. What would they think of us today? Well, I've got nationally syndicated columnist and author of the new book, America's Expiration Date, Cal Thomas on to discuss. A reminder for all of you listening online, share today's podcast through your podcast platform of choice. Go to TonyPerkins.com for more information and archived episodes. Follow us on Twitter at T. Perkins or at Sarah P. Perry. And for those of you who already have the Stand Firm app, make sure you have the updated version. We've rebuilt it from the ground up. You can find it in the Google Play Store or the Apple iTunes Store. You can listen to Washington Watch wherever you go with the Stand Firm app. So make sure to download it now. Well, I'm going to enter the Wayback Machine and give you a little very recent American history. On December 1st, 2017, National Security Advisor General Michael Flynn pled guilty to one count of making false statements to the FBI about phone conversations in December 2016 with then-Russian Ambassador Sergei Kislyak. You remember the name? Now, as part of the plea deal, Flynn said he lied about discussing U.S. sanctions with Kislyak. But as recently as January of this year, Flynn again proclaimed his innocence and said he wanted to recant his guilty plea. Yet another bombshell. New documents released yesterday and turned over at the demand of U.S. Attorney General Bill Barr seem to make it clear that FBI officials schemed 
to get General Flynn both fired and convicted. Let's listen to what former FBI Director James Comey had to say in his own words a few months ago after he'd been fired. You look at this White House now and it's hard to imagine two FBI agents ending up in the same room. How did that happen? I sent them. Something we, I probably wouldn't have done or maybe gotten away with in a more organized investigation, a more organized administration. The FBI wanted to send agents into the White House itself to interview a senior official. You would work through the White House counsel and there'd be discussions and approvals and who would be there. And I thought it's early enough. Let's just send a couple guys over. Uh, you can hear the audience laughing because they realize what he's just admitted to is not following the appropriate process. Hey, what the heck? We'll send some guys over. Joining me now to break down the new documents is Andy McCarthy, senior fellow at National Review Institute, a National Review contributing editor and author of Ball of Collusion, the plot to rig an election and destroy a presidency. Andy, welcome to Washington Watch. Sure. Thanks so much for having me. Well, let me tell you, I'm really glad to have you on, because after writing this book, you must think this falls perfectly in line with the entirety of the plot that you, years ago, recognized was just that, a plot. Yeah, I think what we're seeing is that the paper trail that was not available to us over the last number of years is catching up with what we all who looked at this closely um, could intuit was what happened here in connection with Flynn. uh, It's clear that he was subjected to a perjury trap interview. And that's something that shouldn't be done. Uh, And the reason that uh, former director Comey is explaining that it was something he had to get away with and, uh, and do outside of protocol is because when you're doing something that you're not supposed to do, Uh, You don't want to be told no. And if they had raised it with the Justice Department or the White House beforehand, they would have been told not to do it. What they were hoping to do was uh, knock Flynn out. And that's really what they accomplished, ultimately. Let's talk about some of the specifics of what these documents reveal. There were sort of a a couple different um, pieces of information. Your former prosecutor explained sort of the relevance of what's called Brady material. Why does this matter as far as where Flynn is now? Yeah, well, the Brady is uh, based on Supreme Court case called Brady versus Maryland. There's another uh, relevant one called Giglio versus the United States. But what it essentially says is, If the government has exculpatory information in its files, it has to turn that over to the defense. And one uh, strong aspect of the exculpatory information that the FBI and the Justice Department have been withholding is that there was no basis to conduct an investigation of Flynn. Mm -hmm. Uh, And in fact, at the time that uh, Flynn was interviewed, we learned from the new disclosures today that the FBI had already ordered that the investigation they had of Flynn be closed. Hmm. Uh, And the reason that's relevant is because it's not enough to be guilty to just make a false statement. Flynn doesn't concede at this point that the statements he made were false, but to to be guilty under the statute, you need to make a material false statement, which means it needs to be material to what the FBI is investigating. And if they don't have a real basis to investigate anything, you can obviously see what the relevance of that would be. Now, as you're looking at this from the outside, do we have a situation where potentially they've met the legal standard for entrapment? Uh, 
No, I, you know, I think that um, what Flynn was charged with was making false statements. Um, so it, it's a perjury trap, but um, it, it, it's not a situation where you could say that he was entrapped uh, into lying. Usually where uh, entrapment um, is a factor is when you're talking about some kind of a, a more substantive crime that the person would never, ever commit if he wasn't like tempted into doing it by law enforcement. That's not really available with a false statement. Everybody knows, including uh, General Flynn, that you're not supposed to lie to the FBI, especially when you have the uh, privilege in the United States of refusing to speak to them. Right, right. So <clears throat> where we are now, let's talk a little bit about the situation in these handwritten documents. What are some of these specifics here? Part of that was the inclusion of a handwritten note, and it looks like what we're seeing is communication here between two FBI agents sort of trying to discern what their ultimate aim was. Do we want him fired or do we also want him convicted? Yeah, I think the the main handwritten notes have been identified as uh, written by Bill Prestap, who was the uh, head of counterintelligence at the FBI. And he obviously has very serious misgivings about this plan to go in and speak to Flynn in a way that seems obviously designed to get him to lie, right. um, which is not usually a, a uh, an appropriate investigative step. And what he's saying is, you know, look, this guy's a national security advisor. We're not letting anyone like at the White House or the Justice Department know what we're doing here. What are we doing here? Are we trying to get him to lie? Are we trying to get him to advance our investigation? We need to be much clearer about the mm. legitimate reasons for what we're for doing what we're doing here, or the White House is going to kill us. He basically says, he's, you know, he says that the um, they know that they're supposed to go through the White House before they talk to the White House's um, national security advisor, and they knew they weren't doing that. And what he was trying to do was put the brakes on and say, you know, well, what are we doing here? Right. Now, answer this question for us. Originally, Michael Flynn pled guilty, but you've actually argued recently that. The revelations here, you know, he had sort of an incentive to plead guilty based on something that was going on behind the scenes with his son. Yeah, it looks like what Flynn's camp has always maintained is that one of the reasons that he pled guilty, he was financially ruined by this and it caused a lot of anxiety for his family. So that obviously is a big factor. But mm -hmm. one of the other things they've always said is that Flynn was threatened that if he didn't plead guilty, the Mueller team would indict his son for felony uh, violations of the foreign, uh, the foreign Agent Registration Act, which is something, by the way, that was almost never prosecuted until Mueller decided to use it to squeeze people. Mm. Um, and Flynn, Flynn didn't want to see his son's life get ruined by a federal indictment and investigation. So uh, this was used to squeeze him into pleading guilty. And the revelations that we saw uh, in recent days indicate that there was indeed a commitment that was made by the prosecutors to Flynn's former attorneys that if Flynn pled guilty, they would not prosecute the son. And that was an agreement that they obviously sought to, to conceal from the court because you're supposed to put all commitments that are relevant to a plea in right. the written plea agreement that gets submitted to the court. And, of course, this was not in there. 
So what's the likelihood in your estimation of what happens now? Can the judge vacate the case and ask or vacate the judgment, ask for a retrial? I know Sidney Powell, who is Flynn's attorney, has been asking for this. Where are we headed next, do you think, in this case? Well, I think they're asking for two forms of relief. What, what Sidney Powell would like is for the judge not only to, get, to vacate Flynn's plea, but to throw the case out on the basis of outrageous government misconduct. I think mm-hmm. that's a high bar. I'd be surprised if they did that. But I think he may end up getting the result he wants anyway, because what I suspect will happen is the judge will vacate the plea and tell Flynn, all right, you want your plea back, you got your plea back. That would put the ball in the court of the Justice Department and the FBI. And the question to them would obviously be, do you really dare to come into federal court with a case this ugly and try to prosecute this guy who shouldn't have been investigated in the first place? And I suspect that the Justice Department won't want to do that. No, I would imagine not. Andy McCarthy of National Review and author of the new book, the plot to rake an election and destroy a presidency appropriate for our times and obviously based on what we know now it looks like what we've said about the angle to try to bring down the trump administration and prove the russian collusion hoax may actually have more new information proving its validity well coming up a few days ago kentucky governor andy Bashir vetoed the born alive infant protection act We're going to talk to Kentucky State Senator Whitney Westerfield, author of Senate Bill 9, the act itself, about what he plans to do next. Stick with us on Washington Watch. We'll be right back. Is historic masculinity lost forever? Where can boys, young men, husbands, and fathers find a model of manhood, leadership, and strength in a culture of gender confusion? We need men to be men, tough with compassionate strength, bent toward justice without compromise, locking arms and standing. We need to be the men God created us to be and fight for all that is right, true, and just. This is Tony Perkins inviting you to join us at a Stand Courageous Men's Conference. To find out more, go to StandCourageous.com. This conference is led by men who are seasoned, compassionate men who understand the issues of the day and will invest in you, helping you understand your role as a defender, a provider, an instructor, a battle buddy, and a chaplain so that you can have the generational influence that God has designed you to have. Learn more at StandCourageous.com. That's StandCourageous.com. Did you know that Planned Parenthood is the primary supplier of abortions in the U.S.? According to Planned Parenthood's most recent annual report, it committed over 345,000 abortions in fiscal year 2018. That means, on average, Planned Parenthood aborted 1,768 babies every single day in 2018. And while Planned Parenthood's report revealed an increase in abortions committed, many of the services they provide, such as breast exams and cancer screenings, have drastically decreased. FRC recently released its 2020 edition of The Real Planned Parenthood, Leading the Culture of Death. In this resource, you will find many facts revealing the truth, that Planned Parenthood is in the business of abortion, not health care. To access this resource and to find out more, go to frc.org slash Planned Parenthood Facts. That's frc.org slash Planned Parenthood Facts. 
we can all benefit. Welcome back to this Thursday edition of Washington Watch. I am Sarah Perry sitting in for Tony Perkins on what is for us here in the mid-Atlantic a rainy afternoon. Well, Kentucky Governor Andy Bashir has vetoed the Born Alive Infant Protection Act a few days ago. Why is the value of human life being lauded by liberals during the coronavirus while they refuse to stand for the life of the unborn or newly born on the other? Joining me now to talk about this incredible veto of common sense protective legislation is Kentucky State Senator Whitney Westerfield, who is author of Senate Bill 9, the Born Alive Infant Protection Act. Senator, welcome to Washington Watch. Thanks for having me on. I appreciate it. Okay, I'm going to start with the first question here that is probably one I can anticipate your answer to. Were you surprised by Governor Bashar's veto? Not at all. Uh, Very, very not at all surprised. He's been Mm. hostile to life, unborn, uh, and innocent life since before he was governor. He was the AG before that, and uh, he demonstrated on a regular basis his his lack of concern for unborn lives and those, in this case, that are just born. Um, and innocent, and uh, wasn't at all surprised. You know, this piece of legislation had bipartisan support. There are 77% of pro-choicers, I'm using air quotes here, that support this type of legislation, born-alive type pieces of legislation. It came at him delivered on a silver platter with nothing to do but sign what so many of the state's representatives and senators had already decided was a great idea. And his quote, I'm going to repeat it here, I'm not doing, quote, divisive issues because he wants his focus to be on defeating the coronavirus. He said, continuing, we've got to have 100% of our efforts aimed toward it, and we've got to have unity in this commonwealth, end quote. So as if to say I won't sign this piece of legislation because I am making a unilateral determination that the lives of these children who survive abortion and need medical care are not of the same value of individuals who are older and might need medical care. I don't know how you square that with being able to keep a straight <laughs> face. I really don't. Yeah, you, you just can't. But but he's done it. He'll continue to do it. And keep in mind, this is the same governor who for the last six weeks has had a for the better part of six weeks, has had an order in place prohibiting, like just about everywhere else, no medical, elective medical procedures. We right. can shut down everything from uh, getting your teeth clean to, to getting cancer surgery, but hasn't shut down the elective abortion procedures that are happening at the MW Women's Clinic in Louisville every single day. Between the 1st of March and mid-April, there were 561 abortions in Kentucky, mm. uh, and he's had weeks and weeks to shut them down, to enforce his own order on them, and he hasn't done it. So, of of course, those things don't square, but that doesn't stop him. Uh, This bill was delivered with an overwhelming bipartisan vote in both the House and the Senate. It was a unanimous vote in the Senate. And in the House, it had 70 votes. Uh, I mean, we, we deal with divisive issues. Find a state legislature that doesn't. This isn't one of those things. Uh, when you've got people from the left and the right that are all in agreement on a policy, and who in the world could possibly be opposed to making sure that a child born alive and not even restricted to just failed abortion? It certainly covers that. But any child born alive, 
however it happens, wow. is, is ought, to, ought to have medical care provided. There's no way you can square uh, his sanctimonious, uh, self-righteous protection of life and making sure we're doing all that we can on COVID-19. But in the same breath, with the stroke of a pen and a, and a flippant one-paragraph detailed message, claim that this is divisive and we're not, and we're not going to have it. It's mm. uh, it's very disappointing, uh, very frustrating, and entirely predictable. So you have plans to take a second run at this next year, don't you? Unfortunately, it's actually the third run at this. Wow. Um, when Ralph Northam, that's right, wow, when Ralph Northam, over in Virginia, made the comments that he made a little over a year ago on the radio, which, to my knowledge, he still hasn't recanted or taken back or or edited in some meaningful way, essentially uh, approving the idea of infanticide, that that the child would be delivered from a failed adoption, put aside, made comfortable while the the mother and the doctor have a conversation, which is just about the most gruesome thing I I could hear. When he said that, and that went national, everybody heard about it, I learned that Kentucky was a state that didn't have this protection in place. I filed the bill last year, uh, and it, it failed to get called up in the House for a vote right near the end of session. It had made it all the way through except the House floor vote. And then we have this bill this year, filed it again, and it made it through the whole process. But, of course, the veto uh, was done, and it was because of the bill was passed after uh, or right before we left and adjourned signing die for the end of the regular session, we couldn't mm-hmm. return to override the veto. So I absolutely plan to file it on day one of the 2021 session. Lord willing, I live that long. I'll be there, and we'll file it. I've already made the bill draft, and it'll look just like it did when it left my hands, and uh, it'll be filed on the first day. And I'm going to be lobbying House leadership and Senate leadership both to make sure it is given swift consideration. And praise God for that. You know, a pandemic's not the time to play political games. This is so clearly a political game. I don't know. Well, I wish you could tell the governor that. Boy, I tell you what, I'm hoping he's listening right now. <laughs> we got we got a lot of friends in Kentucky. So let me ask you this. Speaking of friends in Kentucky, we've got stations there that listen to this program. What can they do to help your community fight for life? Well, first, pray for our governor. Pray that his heart would turn, that he would see the value of life, stand against the overwhelming influence of the people around him, the abortion lobby, Planned Parenthood, the ACLU, and whoever else around him that's counseling him against protecting life. So pray for him. And then most importantly, and I don't know if this is kosher on the show or not, but between now and November, when we elect every member of the House of Representatives in Kentucky and half the Senate, Stay on and hold accountable the state representatives or the senators that you have and make sure that they're going to stand up for life when they get there in January. Don't be sitting on the sideline. It's a weird season right now, obviously, because of the pandemic. You're not going to see candidates knocking on doors, and and we're certainly not all going to fish fries every Saturday night like we usually would do on a campaign trail. But that doesn't mean that we shouldn't get out and vote for them this November. Kentucky State Senator Whitney Westerfield has been my guest today, standing strong for life in the Commonwealth. Well, coming up, a new prayer initiative, Praying on the Mountain, from Reverend Fred Lunsford, aimed at bringing about a spiritual awakening, very needed where we are right now. So stick with us and listen to what he has to say coming up next on Washington Watch.
Welcome back to Washington Watch. Sarah Perry sitting in for Tony Perkins today. TonyPerkins.com or the Stand app. That's where you can get audio of this show to take with you whenever you can listen to it. While the economy is teetering, coronavirus is surging, millions of Americans are out of work, and so never before has this nation needed spiritual revival. Reverend Fred Lunsford of Henderson, North Carolina, and Mud Creek Church has created a new prayer initiative called Praying on the Mountain, aimed at bringing about a spiritual awakening in the United States. And let me brag on him for a second. He joined the Army at 18, came to Christ as a little boy, served his country from 1943 to 1945, took part in the Normandy invasion, the Battle of the Bulge, and the liberation of France. You all get to hear from a true American hero. He served as a Southern Baptist pastor and evangelist for 70 years, and he's 95 years young. Reverend Lundford, thank you for joining us. Thank you. God bless you. Thank you. You as well. Now tell me, how did this incredible story about praying on the mountain come to pass? Well, it's a very interesting story, and I know I, I don't. we don't have the time to, to elaborate on the all of the particulars of it, but it began uh, when I was 93 years old, two years ago, I had a sick spell, and I had been in the hospital, and I come out, and I went to my prayer garden after a cell, about three weeks. The doctor allowed me to drive, and I went to my prayer garden to pray, and I asked the Lord to take me on home, that I was 93 years old, and my wife had been dead uh, about, she'd been dead six years, or we six years in August, and uh, she'd gone on to the glory. And, and I said, Lord, I'm, I'm done for it, just take me on. And he said, not mm. yet. Oh. And I didn't know why not yet, and I asked him why, but he delayed his answer for some time. Uh, and I went back to the prayer garden that one day, was praying and seeking the face of God, and a beautiful, beautiful sunshiny day. Birds were singing, and clouds were blooming, and I could look at the mountain range in front of me, and it seemed to me, seemed to me that I saw him, Jesus, standing. Now, remember that I said I seemed to me I saw him. Then people have asked me what poem it was and so forth, and I, I said that's uh, beside the point. I recognize. It was Jesus himself mm. to me. I, and I, and then the, the clouds began to rise and thunder began to clap and lightning began to flash and rain began to come down and the storms raging and I didn't see him anymore. But then the storm began to still and I heard this still small voice spoke to my heart and said, do you want to know why not yet? Yes, I want to know why not yet. And he said, I have extended your years for a purpose, for a reason. What is that reason, my Lord? And he said, I want you to pray for spiritual awakening of our country, of our world, and the healing of the nations. And not only do I want you to pray, but I want you to get everybody you can to pray with you. 
And, and so, to this point, 120,000 uh, uh, people have signed up. I was just on the website for mudcratechurch.org. For our listeners, if you go under the events tab, you will see right at the top the prayer on the mountain link. And on that page, you can see more of Reverend Lunsford's story. But tell me in these two minutes here that we have left, sir, what are the particular prayer points that we can join in praying with you? Okay. Pray for spiritual awakening and the healing of our nations. Second Chronicles seven fourteen tells us that God's people to do that. And and my my tremendous heartbeat and cry is that the people everywhere will cry out to God for spiritual awakening. Mm. And this fifth of May is merely a launching pad or something bigger that God is about to do. And we need to be ready to receive what he has for us. That's my message, my plea to everybody who's listening. Please. Now, I understand that WKRK Radio is going to be videoing a part of the prayer time on the mountain. They'll make it available for viewing via the Facebook page as well. Is that right? That's true, yes. Now, can people also join with you online as we have this day of prayer on May 5th? Yes. Now, are you hoping to do more of these in the future, or is this, uh, is this a once and done, or are you planning on planning such a way that this might continue on a yearly basis? Well, we're going to do, going to do things as God directs us in the future. It's not a one, one time event. It's an ongoing thing that we God wants us to do. You guys and have to go. To doing that. Yes, you I have, realize it. You have got to go to mudcreekchurch.org. Mudcreekchurch.org. Go under the events tab. You can actually read an article more about Reverend Lunsford. He has an incredible personal testimony. You can sign up and commit to join with in prayer. And you can learn how to get friends and colleagues with you to join together in prayer. What a great and desperately needed resource for this day and age. Well, we look back at our fathers and grandfathers, great men. This generation sometimes feels as though it's lacking. So do we have what it takes to fill very big shoes? We'll talk to Cal Thomas, author and syndicated columnist, coming up next. Where can young men, husbands, and fathers find a model of real manhood, leadership, and strength in today's culture of gender confusion? This is Tony Perkins inviting you to join us at a Stand Courageous Men's Conference led by men who are seasoned, compassionate men who understand the issues of the day and will help you understand your role as a defender, provider, instructor, battle buddy, and chaplain so that you can have the generational influence God has designed you to have. Learn more at StandCourageous.com. Recently, a bill called the Fairness for All Act was introduced to the House of Representatives. In response, FRC has a new resource, the Unfairness of the Fairness for All Act. This act attempts to find a compromise between the First Amendment's protection of religious freedom and the demands of the LGBT community. But, unfortunately, it is a poorly drafted bill that would negatively impact religious freedom, true equality, and the privacy and safety of women. Learn more at frc.org slash fairness for all. Did you know that Planned Parenthood is the primary supplier of abortions in the U.S.? 
According to Planned Parenthood's most recent annual report, it committed over 345,000 abortions in fiscal year 2018. That means, on average, Planned Parenthood aborted 1,768 babies every single day in 2018. And while Planned Parenthood's report revealed an increase in abortions committed, many of the services they provide, such as breast exams and cancer screenings, have drastically decreased. FRC recently released its 2020 edition of The Real Planned Parenthood, Leading the Culture of Death. In this resource, you will find many facts revealing the truth, that Planned Parenthood is in the business of abortion, not health care. To access this resource and to find out more, go to frc.org slash Planned Parenthood Facts. That's frc.org slash Planned Parenthood Facts. Welcome back to Washington Watch. This is Sarah Perry, Director of Partnerships here, sitting in for Tony Perkins on this Thursday afternoon. Well, yesterday's Americans and today's Americans stand in quite sharp contrast to one another. Our parents, our grandparents withstood world wars and polio, the Great Depression and smallpox. They put a man on a moon with rudimentary computers and built a 1,700-mile highway connecting the lower 48 to Alaska. But to us now, we look at them, they are heroes in whose generation this shadow is cast long and dark. What would they think of us today? Well, joining me now to talk about his observations on the contrast provided by previous generations and our own is columnist and author of America's Expiration Date, Cal Thomas. Cal, welcome to Washington Watch. Well, thank you, Sarah. Nice to be with you. Thanks for asking me. Well, let me tell you, I have a lot of questions because you have a new book out and you have some articles out and there's a perfect sort of synchronicity between a lot of these issues. So let me start, first of all, with what you see in the differentiation between previous generations and where we are as a nation right now. Well, Sarah, uh, this generation, the one that's alive now, a couple or three, uh, have never, re- never really had to endure hardship, as I wrote in my recent column. Uh, they've not really had to sacrifice anything. Uh, they've never had to face the draft. The military is now uh, all voluntary, of course. And there is an entitlement mentality that has seeped into our culture mm-hmm. where people feel if they're just breathing, they're entitled to whatever, including other yes. people's money. And I think that's a very dangerous thing. I mean, my parents and grandparents taught me, by example, uh, that inspiration followed by motivation followed by perspiration improves any life. But Mm. now we flip that coin, and it's envy, greed, and entitlement, the unholy uh, trinity of the secular progressives. So, uh, you know, this is bad. Uh, We've had over 60,000 Americans die from this coronavirus, a terrible, terrible thing. But 418,000 died in World War II. And my parents' and grandparents' generation didn't have some of the social programs uh, that we have today. So I'm not, I'm not denigrating anybody. I'm just saying, look, you know, they suffered through, as you mentioned, a Great Depression and a World War, 15 years of hardship. Mm-hmm. And we're complaining because a few beaches are closed and we have to wear masks going into supermarkets and social distancing. <laughs> I just don't think there's an equivalency there, frankly. No, no, I don't either. And I have to tell you, you know, 
I hate to put it on the millennials. They get a bad rap. I've met some very encouraging millennials who give me hope for that particular generation. I'm a Generation Xer. People have responded to us as sort of the forgotten middle child. We we didn't want to make any hay. We just kind of did our thing. We went to college or grad school, took on the debt we needed to so we could take on a mortgage, have kids, and we're just sort of living right in the middle of the American sort of populace right now. But millennials, post-millennials, Generation Z, I'm so discouraged every time I meet one of these individuals and what I get unfailingly, not universally, but the majority of the time are individuals just as you described, Cal, individuals who are really feeling entitled. Those who think after six months on a job, they are entitled to a raise or they're entitled immediately to two months paid vacation when they start working or someone else should pay for their college or hard work really is a little unnecessary. And if somebody else could do it, that would be great. Thanks. So sometimes I think, oh, man, is there any hope for this sort of series of up and coming generations? Yeah, well, well, first of all, we see a lot of this reflected in the debt. Government has long exceeded its constitutional boundaries mm-hmm. set by the founders. The founders wanted the federal government to be limited so the people would be unlimited in their aspirations. Now we're very close to turning our initials from USA to ATM. That we have, we're, we're going toward a $27 trillion debt in this country that cannot be sustained. As I argue in my book, America's Expiration Date, which looks at all of these great empires of the past, massive national debt was one of the major contributors to their downfall. No mm. country can sustain this kind of debt. And now we're talking about more infrastructure, phase four, trillions of more dollars. Where's that going to come from? Well, if the left gets in power, they're going to raise taxes again. But if you taxed every American 100% of their income, it wouldn't be enough to uh, pay off a $27 trillion debt. Uh, A friend of mine is a talk show host in Washington the other day, calculated that if you paid $750 per second, it would take you over 700 years to pay off uh, the debt, I think was his calculation. It is enormous. Most people don't even know how many zeros uh, go after the sum of a trillion dollars. We can't go on like this, but the politicians won't say no to anybody because their primary interest is getting reelected. Well, here's my problem, is that we, particularly now, we're facing an economic crisis. We're teetering on the edge of a recession. We know that the unemployment rate continues to skyrocket during the Great Depression, and you've written about this. The unemployment rate rose to above 14%. Now, we're not at that now, but the Congressional Budget Office has forecasted potentially as high as 16% by September. Do we have the right stuff to withstand that kind of difficulty? Well, look, we have we have survived other uh, pandemics, uh, the uh, H1N1 flu, uh, SARS, uh, uh, swine flu, and all of these things. We didn't have to. I think, frankly, we overreacted and uh, shut down everything. Now, I understand the politics of this, but but when you when you close down the greatest economy in the history of this country, or indeed the world, and and if you tell people that you've got to practice uh, these these safety measures in in terms of uh, social distancing and masks and the rest and wash your hands. And then 
even if you practice those, tell them that you can't go to work or open your business if you happen to own one, uh, then it seems to me uh, it, it's a self-imposed suicide. Yeah. Uh, we really can't go on like this. I mean, the reason that the unemployment rate is so high now is because we are doing this to ourselves. We're shutting down these businesses, uh, restaurants, uh, gyms. Uh, I don't know why they keep mentioning tattoo parlors. That never has come up on my <laughs> list of important and essential businesses, but apparently that's important to some people. Uh, so uh, th this is not something that has, uh, uh, you know, been done to us by another country like uh, the Nazis or, or, or the Soviet Union or communist China, although we don't know the final word on that yet and the source of this uh, Wuhan virus. But mm -hmm. uh, it's something we've done to ourselves. And we've got to start, and thank goodness for some of these governors that are beginning to open up cautiously uh, their, their, their states again. I see Gavin Newsom, the uh, governor of California, who had just closed down all the beaches again after he thought too many people were on the beaches in Orange County. Uh, right. Now, because of public pressure, he's opened them up again, which is a good thing. I think I think we need a second American revolution in this country, and I'm not talking about guns, but I am talking about we've got to do something about our government, our federal government that succeeded its constitutional boundaries, or there'll be no end to this, or there will be an end, and it will be America's collapse. I, I want to talk a little bit about education. That's an issue that's sort of a, a passion issue of mine. I'm the mother of three kids who are all in the public school system. We have a very good school system here, but we're a bit of an enclave in northern Baltimore County, generally red in terms of its voting. We, in my school, in high school, I'm an older Gen Xer. It was the Canterbury Tales. It was Shakespeare. It was the Good Earth. It was Steinbeck and the Grapes of Wrath. I think I've seen, and I want to hear your thoughts on this, sort of this industrial industrialized notion of turning education not into sort of the ability for individuals to think critically and on a bigger plane about the world around them, but to go out and be the widgets upon which American ideas are stamped and companies are filled. We are creating sort of Marxist future workers, and I think what that does is it perpetuates the problem of not fully understanding or appropriately studying American exceptionalism. What's your concept there? Well, you're right. You're right, Sarah. And I think uh, one of the side benefits, if you can call it that, from this uh, national shutdown, the closing of schools for the rest of the school year, is that a lot of people are discovering the benefits of homeschooling. And yeah. you're absolutely right about uh, so many of our schools and universities, by the way, it doesn't stop in the K through 12. Oh, yes. Do not do not teach American history anymore, or if they do, they teach you with a bias. Oh, some of the founders owned slaves, therefore we can't pay attention to anything else they believed or anything else they wrote. Well, right. uh, no, this is this is nuts, and I, I I think you know a lot of a lot of parents send their kids off to universities, the kind of universities where they have professors that dis, not only dismantle their faith, but also uh, uh, teach them a kind of American history and other subjects that would have been foreign just two or three generations ago. Mm -hmm. I mean, I took civics in school. I took logic. I took all of these other... I learned real American history, uh, but all of it has been twisted now, and now it's easier to get a transgender person in uh, to speak to uh, kindergarten students, or Heather yeah. has two mommies, than it is to teach the real history of the United States of America. It's yeah. disgusting, but, but we do this to ourselves. I mean, Barbara Bush, the uh, late first lady, uh, once said, I love this line, and 
uh, she said, our, our, our success as a country, your success as a family, depends less on what happens in the White House and more on what happens in your house. Mm. We have the power. We have to take it back. Our kids are on loan from God. They don't belong to us. And we're going to be accountable to him, not for how they turn out, because that's their own choice, but what we have put in. Oh, so well said. What do we do with this information? I so desperately appreciate your wisdom on this topic. I think the book is fully needed for this time and for this day. You've written about the fact that there was sort of a sociologist who studied the fact that empires, great nations, have about a shelf life of 250 years, which you put at 2026. So if that's the case, the sort of theoretical clock is ticking. So what do we do with the notion? Well, first of all, I'm not a prophet. I'm not one of these people walking around with a sandwich board and a long white beard saying the end is near. Uh, but this, this book was based on a, an essay by the late British diplomat Sir John Glubb, who studied 4,000 years of history and found that uh, these patterns occurred over and over and over again. Uh, Rome was an exception, of course. It lasted longer than 250 years. But all of them follow the same pattern. And in addition to national debt, uh, The other uh, uh, characteristics of these uh, great empires and superpowers that fell was loss of a shared moral sense. Uh, Mm. We certainly have that now. There's a story in the Wall Street Journal today that marriage is at the lowest rate it has ever been, at least between a man and a woman uh, in this country. Uh, A a loss of a sense of appreciation and belief and faith in God. Uh, George Barna and others have done research on this, and uh, the Pew Research Center on Religion have found that 20% of millennials, uh, when asked what their religious preference is, says says none. You have to have a transcendent reason for getting up in the morning and going to work, other than just making money and buying stuff. Uh, if you if you don't, your your life is empty on the face. And I fear that we're you know. Faith has been attacked in this country. Uh, success has been attacked in this country. When I was growing up, wealthy and successful people were role models. I wanted to be like them. Right. I interviewed as a reporter a lot of wealthy and successful people. I didn't envy them. I said, what's your philosophy of life? Where would you go to school? I want to be like you someday. Now the attitude is if you make $2 and I make only $1, it's income inequality and I owe you 50 cents. Right, right. And P.S., I want you to pay for my college while you're at it because you took yeah, on your true. own debt. Yeah. <laughs> I, I would like to hand out the receipts from the law school debt I am still paying down, if you can believe yeah. that, as old as I am. But you know what? That's It is hard work. That's how I was raised. We were yeah. given the opportunity to go out and work hard. That was the opportunity, was our own industry and our understanding that we could make for ourselves whatever we wanted if we we worked hard enough. So here we are. We're studying the notion of sort of this philosophy that indicates, you know, we have sort of a shelf life if we don't get our act together. Again, for our listeners, America's expiration date is the book title. It is out on Amazon, came out in January of this year. Give us sort of a good word as we close here. Tell us about some bright spots you see in America's current history and where we might be headed based on what you're seeing now. 
Well, uh, let me just say this, first of all. Uh, my hope is not built, in any, uh, built on any politician or even this country, which I love very much. Uh, Jesus said that my kingdom is not of this world. And to store up your, for yourselves treasures in heaven where moth and rust don't corrupt and thieves can't break through and steal. Now, obviously, I have my political preferences, but, but no politician can reach the human heart. And one of the, one of the strains that run through all of these empires and great, great nations is, is a loss of a, of a sense of a faith and responsibility and accountability to God. And that, that, as Solzhenitsyn warned, as Moses warned, as Jesus warned, as all of the scriptures warned, what happens, as Lincoln warned, who said that the cause of the Civil War was that we had forgotten God. Uh, you cannot sustain yourself as an individual or as a nation without a, a, a faith in, a, in, a, in the Lord. And so that's what, uh, that is the center of my life. Now, I would say, and I say in the book, we need to rescue the next generation. And that means we need to put them in the kinds of schools. You say you have a good public school in North Baltimore, that's fine. But a lot of these major cities uh, do not. Yes. And, uh, you know, we, we it, it, you know, is, it, Barbara Bush again said, if men and women, if you have children, they must come first. So if you're going to have kids, you've got to put them in the right kind of environment that is not going to dismember their faith and teach them about an America that never really existed, but is really just political correctness on steroids. So we start with the next generation, and hopefully if enough, enough Americans are serious about that and res rescue their, their kids uh, from these re-education camps, as I call them, uh, then we might be able to exceed that 250-year average. Well, hopefully there are three of them in my house, and that's a pretty good start, I'm hoping. Kel Thomas, thank you so much for being with me today. Man, I could talk to you for such a long time. The book's America's expiration date. Get it on Amazon or wherever books are sold. This has been Washington Watch. I'll talk to you all tomorrow. Washington Watch with Tony Perkins is brought to you by Family Research Council and is entirely listener-supported. Portions of the show discussing candidates are brought to you by Family Research Council Action. For more information on anything you've heard today or to find out how you can partner with us in our ongoing efforts to promote faith, family, and freedom, visit TonyPerkins.com. Also, to leave a comment about Washington Watch, call our watch line at 1-866-372-7234. 